0: This is Peter writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, and these are the words that he pens. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our great God, finish the sentence, stands forever. You may be seated. Four points on your outline this morning. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do so. You'll listen better if you do. Number one is this. Our living hope, our resurrection living hope is rooted in a supernatural power. Our resurrection living hope is rooted in a supernatural power. Look at your Bible there, specifically at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first thing that I want you to notice from our passage this morning is that Peter opens his letter with a sweeping praise because of the greatness and the wonder of God's great salvation. Peter opens our text here with this sweeping doxology, sweeping praise as he considers, as he thinks about, as he mulls over the greatness and the wonder of God's salvation. You know, it's interesting that our translations, most of your translations, probably read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter is so insistent upon our praise here that he leaves out the word be. That's added in your and my translation. The Greek simply reads, Blessed the God. Blessed the God. This isn't the same word blessed that we Find in other passages in the New Testament. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember uh, a year or so ago, we studied through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And over and over again, specifically in Matthew 5, we, we saw this word blessed, blessed, blessed is the one, blessed is the one. Macarius is the word there. And it means happy. Happy is the one, happy is the one. But that's not the word that Peter uses here in verse 3. The word that Peter uses here in verse 3 is the word from which we get our English word or derive our English word eulogy. And it means to praise. It doesn't mean happy in this instance, it means to praise. And in the New Testament, this particular word is only ever used in reference to God. Before Peter says anything else before he launches into any other subject, before he explains any other matter, I want you to notice here that he exhorts us to praise God, blessed the God, praise the God. The definite article there, the God, as in the one true God, the creator of the universe, praise him, praise him was thinking about the psalmist words in Psalm 148 just just hear this for a second all creation praises him the psalmist writes, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his host! praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars, praise him in the highest heavens and you waters above the earth, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever, he gave them a decree that shall not be uh, pass away, praise the Lord, over and over and over in Psalm 148, the psalmist declares that all creation praises his name, and rightfully so. We should follow suit. Blessed the God. Praise God. Well, praise him for what? Well, Peter goes on and he tells us here, praise him. Because according to his great mercy, he has acted on our behalf. Mercy, think about that word for just a minute here, everything we have is a result of mercy. Absolutely everything, the the last firing impulse in your brain, according to his mercy. The last draw of oxygen, according to his mercy. The last beat of your heart according to his mercy, every joy according to his mercy, every pleasure this side of the grave according to his mercy, salvation according to his mercy. Everything that we have is according to his mercy. Praise him for his mercy, Peter says. The Bible tells us that we have all sinned and as a result of that sin we deserve death and eternal judgment. With that in mind, every day that we live, every moment that he sustains us is an act that is divine and undeserved mercy. If God gave us what we deserved, we would all, every single one of us, without exception, be condemned right now at this very moment. In Psalm 51 David cries out, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out or remove or erase my transgressions, wash me, clean me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You ever cried out to God like that? Let me make a bold but a gracious statement. If you haven't, then you're not a Christian. If you've never cried out to God, like David does here in Psalm 51 verses 1 and 2, you might want to write that down and go back and look at it later, Psalm 51, 1 and 2, if the the cry of your heart has never been such, not necessarily using the exact same words in the exact same order, the exact same vocabulary, but if the cry of your heart has not been, wash me and cleanse me from my sin, blot out my transgression, then you don't know God. Certainly not the God of the Bible. When God grants mercy, he withholds the judgment that we rightly deserve. And instead, he grants us forgiveness that we could have in no way earned. That's mercy. Mercy. Again, the psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You plead for mercy? Have you pleaded for mercy? If you, O Lord, should mark or if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope, we're coming back to that word, hope, here in just a few moments. Friends, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the very sin that makes us uh, so desperately in need of it. That's the only thing that we contribute to our salvation, is the sin that makes it necessary. Our new birth, if we have received it, can no more be acquired by self-effort than a newborn can bring about its own physical birth. The experiences of a new birth and the experiences of living hope are beyond human procurement. They're God's gracious gift and they're bestowed solely on the account of His great mercy, of God giving us something that we don't deserve and withholding that, namely His divine justice and wrath which we do rightly deserve. All of these blessings come to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, as the direct consequence of Jesus Christ's total triumph over the powers of sin and hell. Peter characterizes here our salvation using the metaphor a living hope. A living hope. This is all connected to the resurrection, there is is no living hope apart from the resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation, no salvation, no hope, but such is not the case. God has given us a new birth, in other words, born again. Have you been born again? We're all born physically alive, but every single one of us without exception are born into this world spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead, needing to be born again, second birth, new birth. Have you cried out to mercy or cried out in mercy to God, asking him for new birth? God, save me from my sin. Blot out my iniquity. Cleanse me. Make me pure before you. That's what it means to be born again. This living hope that Peter speaks about here is based upon an irreversible historical fact, and that irreversible historical fact is the fact that Jesus Christ, God's Son, really did walk this earth. He really did trod this soil some for some thirty years. He was crucified, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And so, if we are born again, having put all of our hope in Him, having put all of our trust in Him. Receiving new life, we praise him. We praise him. And we've been given a living hope that is anchored to his promise. I think about Jesus' words in John chapter 11. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Not only was I resurrected, but I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Christ has conquered sin and death. And he's given us the promise of eternal life through him. Eternal life is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Interpretation, you can't go over him. You can't go around him. You can't go under him. You must come through him. There is no other way. Jesus Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy, we, if we've been united to him, also live with him. You see, because of the resurrection, we don't fear a hopeless end, but rather in Christ, we possess an endless hope. We don't fear a hopeless end because of the resurrection of Christ, we possess an endless hope. Friends, do you possess that living hope? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is rooted in a supernatural power. You can't procure it on your own. Number two on your outline is this, our living hope rests in a secure possession. Our resurrection living hope rests in a secure possession. Look at verses four and five. Peter writes, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If you needed a running start there, by His mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to, uh, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that Peter speaks of here as being imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You see, friends, being born again, being born again carries with it the reality of entrance into a new family. Uh, Just as a child is born into a new family and becomes an heir to all that family owns, to all that comes with being part of that family unit and possessing that family name, so being born again carries with it the reality of entrance into a new family and becoming beneficiaries. Of a heavenly new inheritance. Now, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, don't turn there, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness with our Spirit that we are indeed children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. And if we're heirs of God, then we are fellow heirs with Christ. Being born again carries with it the reality of entrance into a new family and being beneficiaries to a heavenly inheritance. Now here's what you need to know here. Peter was writing to a particular audience. We stand many years after the original intended recipients of this letter. Paul was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and when, or Peter rather, and when Peter said the word inheritance... Jewish minds would have gone immediately to the Old Testament, Old Covenant inheritance, namely Canaan, the Promised Land. That's what every Jew's mind would have immediately gone to if you said inheritance. They would have immediately thought about the inheritance of the Promised Land. However, the Jews to whom Peter was speaking here, knew that the promised inheritance was at times taken by other nations. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that the promised land, Canaan, was at times taken back over by by warring and and neighboring nations. The Jewish people that were there uh, were were exiled. They were exiled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. As a matter of fact, at at the time of Peter's writing here, the land was under Roman rule. But Peter speaks of a better inheritance, a permanent inheritance that comes as a result of our being born again and our being united to Jesus Christ. And so what Peter's going to do here is is he's going to redirect his Jewish audience thinking that would have immediately gone to promised land inheritance and say, guys, there's something better. There's something better. As we look at the way that Peter describes the believer's inheritance, it almost seems as though he's grappling for words to define it, to describe the believer's inheritance, to adequately describe it. Have you ever been there? Uh, Try uh, try trying to describe something that's breathtaking, Uh, the Grand Canyon, for instance, or or if you've had the privilege to watch an infant come into the world, try to describe that. In our human, feeble, frail, finite language. I mean, words just escape us. To try to adequately describe something like that. Well, I think the same thing takes place here. I think Peter resorts resorts to describing the believer's inheritance by telling us what it isn't. Because words just escape him in trying to define what it is. Notice four observations about the believer's inheritance here. First, Peter says that it's imperishable. It's imperishable. That means it's not able to be destroyed. If you know Christ, if you've received his mercy, if you've been born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, raised to new life, you have an inheritance that is in heaven. And the first way that Peter describes that inheritance is by telling us that it is imperishable. It is not able to be destroyed. I mean, almost everything we know has an expiration. Uh, Go open your refrigerator when you get home and you'll find that many things probably there are past their prime. Some things expire before they're given time. I mean, we live in a world that is cursed by sin, where where decay and death are certain realities. But the inheritance that we have to look forward to as believers, Peter tells us, is unable to be destroyed. It's imperishable. It will last forever, days without end. It will never diminish, it will never lessen, it will never lighten, it will never go away. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote this poem. The stars shine over the mountains. The stars shine over the sea. The stars look up to the mighty God. The stars look down on me. The stars shall last for a million years, a million years and a day. But God and I will live in love when the stars have yet passed away. Imperishable, unable to be destroyed, Peter says of our inheritance. In heaven. Secondly, he says that it's undefiled, and this means that it's unable to be polluted. It's hard to conceive of a world undefiled by sin because we live in a world that is dripping with sin. But speaking of the next world and the inheritance that awaits us because of the sure resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul reminds us that the next world will be unpolluted and unstained by sin. No hint of sin, no stain of sin. It's without sorrow, it's without tears, death, pain. There's no abortion, no broken marriages, no war, no pornography, no alcoholism, no adultery, no pride, no selfishness, murder, jealousy, suffering, no lack of love, no disappointments, no crime, no greed, no frustrations, no cancer, no viruses, no famine, or drugs, or gangs, or overindulgence, or prosthetics, or medications, or envy, or lust, or temptation, or half-hearted worship, or manipulation, or lying, or persecution or discouragement or bitterness or backbiting or guilt or shame or deception or conflict or laziness or licentiousness or every other result of the fall, it'll all be gone, undefiled. You wrote all that down, right? Brothers and sisters, God is going to make all things new, and he's preparing you for the day that he's going to obliterate every trace of sin from this world. He's preparing you for the day when you, the redeemed of God, will enjoy the felicity of basking in God's presence, worshiping the splendor of his holiness, and serving at his side. And all of this is because of the resurrection. Do you have this living hope? Third, Peter tells us that our future inheritance is unfading. That means it's not subject to decay. The word, the original word there comes from the word that means to dry up or to wither. Our future inheritance will never dry up, it will never wither, it will never decay. I mean, again, our minds can scarcely fathom such a reality. We are surrounded by beauty that fades. The flowers that decorate our gardens bloom and then they die. The loveliness of the heavenly inheritance is described as being exempt from the very blight that is attached to earthly bloom. Most of our possessions require constant maintenance and upkeep, and even with good maintenance, we can't sustain our possessions forever. Consider an investment in a particular stock or a bond that at one time had great value and then all of a sudden becomes worthless and without value. Likewise, the beauty of a young person fades over time. But when our bodies have long since expired... And when we are reunited with Christ on that final day, we will be made incorruptible forevermore, restored, renewed, complete. And it's all because of the resurrection. Do you have this living hope? So much of our discouragement in this life, so much of our fear, So much of our trepidation is the result of having a mind that is tethered to the things of this world. And when we look around, we see that everything is fading. We see that everything is defiled. And so it's hard for us to imagine a future inheritance that is the exact opposite. Brothers and sisters, set your mind on things above. Not on the things of earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Is your treasure in heaven? Peter tells us that our inheritance is kept. Your translation may say reserved in heaven for you. The word there, kept or reserved, it means to watch over protectively. In other words, as believers, our inheritance is under the constant surveillance of omnipotence under the constant surveillance of omnipotence, the point of it being kept or the point of it being reserved is that it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Our future inheritance, if we are united to Christ by his resurrection, is absolutely guaranteed. 250 miles from here, just south of Louisville, Kentucky, is the world's, quote, safest place. The inconspicuous building just off Dixie Highway, known as Fort Knox, it may not appear to be anything out of the ordinary, but there is absolutely nothing ordinary about this building. Now, Fort Knox serves as the U.S. bullion depository. It's where the gold reserves are stored. According to the U.S. Mint, there is currently 147.3 million ounces of gold stored inside. I was curious the other day studying what the current price of gold was, And as of Friday afternoon, the current price of gold was $1,278 per ounce. So you just do a little bit of multiplication there, 147.3 million times, 1,278. I wasn't the math major, but that comes up to something like $188 billion worth of gold. Uh, Because Fort Knox is considered to be so impenetrable. Some of the most precious documents that the world has ever known have been housed there from time to time. As a matter of fact, during the height of World War II, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the US Constitution, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and the Gutenberg Bible were among such documents that were housed in this safest place. All this precious treasure was housed inside 750 tons of reinforced steel, 16,000 cubic feet of granite, 4,200 cubic yards of concrete, and it's all shut in by a 22-ton vault door. The vault was constructed to withstand an atomic bomb. The combination to the vault door, it's been disseminated to 10 different people. Each person has a partial code. Not one single person knows the total code, and those 10 people don't even know each other. The code has to be inserted one person at a time. Even if you had the entire vault code, you'd have to pass through the outside courtyard which is rumored or written to be surrounded by landmines and uses multi-focus surveillance systems in order to spot any unauthorized personnel. Lasers and radar protect the building from the ground and a designated satellite defense system is said to be able to identify threats from outside our little blue ball. And all this is backed up by 30,000 soldiers and an assortment of tanks and attack helicopters and other heavy artillery. But friends, let me tell you Fort Knox doesn't compare. Fort Knox doesn't compare to the inheritance that is kept, reserved for you in heaven if you know Christ. What is the believer's inheritance? What is the believer's inheritance? We've, we, we've, we've talked about uh, how we describe it here. And Peter tells us that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. But what is it? Well, uh, let me give you a, a, a super broad definition here. The believer's inheritance is essentially everything that comes along with being united to Christ. Again, the Bible calls us in Christ co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is Christ's is ours. However, I would submit to you that God himself is the greatest part of our inheritance. He is our portion. He is our joy. He is our great reward. And in heaven we will have unhindered access and fellowship to him. Fellowship without sin. David in Psalm 16 says this, speaking about God, he says, God, you are my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Later in Psalm 73, we read the words of Asaph, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, I would submit to you that your inheritance is God himself. It's everything that belongs to Christ as a result of our being united with him, as a result of our being co-heirs with Christ, but I would submit to you that the greatest part of our inheritance is God himself. And if that doesn't excite you, heaven won't excite you. And if heaven doesn't excite you, you're not a Christian. Oh saint, Rejoice. Bless the God, praise the God, the one true God, because he is keeping an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in heaven for you. And he is our inheritance, he is our portion. Look at verse 5 here for just a minute. Peter goes on and he talks about our omnipotent guard, our omnipotent shield. Peter says, who, speaking about us, believers, Christians, Those who have been born again, united with Christ, raised with him by the power of his resurrection, those people who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice here, the inheritance is kept for us, but we, according to Peter, are kept by God for our future inheritance. You catch that? The the inheritance... There's waiting for us, Is kept there, it is reserved there, it is guaranteed there. But what Peter is saying is that God is also keeping us united to Christ for the inheritance. The inheritance kept for us, we are kept for the inheritance. The same power of God that keeps the inheritance also keeps us. The word guarded there in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded it's a military term. It literally means to guard as with a military guard or to garrison. The New American Standard Translation, if you've got the NASB on your lap there, it translates the word as protected. The picture that Peter paints here is one of God's standing guard to protect his own. And it's a present participle in the original language. Don't get confused. All that means is that it indicates an action that is ongoing. It's in progress. In other words, it's a continuous ongoing process of protection in the middle of the already and the not yet where we live. Yes, our opposition is formidable. Yes, we're vulnerable. But Paul reminds us, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Peter tells us that we are guarded by God's power through faith for what? Well, he tells us for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The word revealed there in your Bible has the idea of removing a covering off of something to reveal what is contained inside. You take the cover off of something so that you can see what's inside. Peter wants us to know that God, who is our divine shield will continue to be the believer's shield and assurance right to the end. As complete as salvation is, as ready as it already is, even as is experienced as it already is, salvation has a glorious future in which God will bring everything to its ultimate and intended divine and sovereign conclusion in heaven, including you, if you know him. And I would submit to you friends that this is the reassurance that will carry you through life's trials and storms and difficulties. Number three on your outline, write this down if you're taking notes. Our living hope, our resurrection living hope results in a sanctified perspective. It results in a sanctified perspective, look at verses 6 and 7, Peter writes, in this Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says, in this you rejoice. Well, again, this is a sweeping statement here that picks up everything that Peter has said to this point. In other words, because God is praiseworthy, blessed the God, praise the God. Because he is praiseworthy, you rejoice. Because God is rich in mercy, you rejoice. Because God has called you and caused you to be born again, you rejoice. Because he's given you a living hope, you rejoice. Because this was accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you rejoice. And because you have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in heaven, you rejoice. Because God, the omnipotent shield, is guarding your faith, you rejoice. Because God will soon bring his redemptive work to its final and full completion, including you and me, we rejoice. Paul says, or Peter says, rejoice, rejoice. Matter of fact, the word that he uses here has the idea of a joy that is out of this world. It's otherworldly. You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The expression, all kinds, or various kinds, refers to the trials that face believers. Actually, in the original language there, various trials, or many kinds, uh, actually means many-colored Many colored trials, many colored difficulties, many colored struggles this side of eternity. Matter of fact, uh, later in First Peter chapter 4, Peter uses it to describe God's grace, the same word. It's interesting that the only two occurrences of this particular Greek uh, word here speak of the trials, many colored trials, but God has many colored grace. Many colored difficulties, God has many colored grace. I love that. But in whatever color troubles may appear, and they will, they will. Some of us know that better than others. And if they haven't come yet, sit tight, they will. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, cursed by sin. Christians are not exempt from that, but we do have a good guard. We're not exempt. Whatever color troubles appear, God's grace will always match them and prove perfectly sufficient. It's important that you know who Peter's writing to here. We, we didn't read verses uh, 1 and 2, but just let your eyes glance back up there to the beginning of Peter's letter here. Now, Peter says he identifies himself as the author, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion, In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We need to remember that scripture always comes to us in a context. Peter's writing to a particular audience here. For a particular reason, and as you read Peter's letter, it's obvious that he was writing to young Jewish Christians who were facing incredible opposition and hostility as a result of their faith. Have you experienced that? Opposition or hostility as a result of your faith? But the whole tone of Peter's letter is one of hope and encouragement. Peter refers to the recipients here as the exiles, the elect exiles of the dispersion. Well, that was a metaphor that was uniquely used of Old Testament saints who who were uh, scattered all throughout the ancient Near East uh, by those who oppressed them. And as God's elect, the individuals that Peter is writing to here, these young Christians would have wrestled with what it meant to belong to God and to be the object of his special affections and yet at the same time be seemingly abandoned. Or to struggle with how to connect the dots between being the object of of God's special favor and love and yet struggling with trials to the degree that they were. Friends we all will be here sooner than later. We're all uh, aliens and strangers, citizens of another world if we know Christ savingly. Yet for the moment we're not residents of that world. And so Peter's writing to encourage believers here who face an uncertain future threatened by persecution and difficulty and trial. Friends, here's what we need to know here. The road to heaven is marked with difficulty. The road to heaven is marked with trial. It's marked out by earthly sorrow. And yet this oftentimes seems to catch us by surprise. But all throughout the New Testament, we're encouraged, don't... Don't let this trial su- surprise you as if something peculiar were happening to you. No, get your eyes off the things of earth. get your eyes on things of heaven in, in heaven. Set your minds on things in heaven. When God who, who is your life appears, when Christ who is your life appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Get your eyes heavenward. Trials and suffering and sorrows, that's part of what it means to live in the world that we live in. Paul is reminding us, Peter rather, uh, is reminding us to see our suffering, to see our trials, to see our difficulty in light of heaven's sure promise. In other words, God's been merciful to you. He's caused you to be born again. As a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has also caused you to be risen to new life. Now, in the middle of the already and the not yet, which is where every single one of us currently live, the road to heaven which we walk is marked out by earthly sorrow. The way that you endure earthly sorrow is with a resurrection perspective. The way that you are to view sorrow and discouragement and trials and suffering and difficulty in this world is to have a resurrection perspective. There's several observations about the believers' trials here. First observation, our our troubles only last for a little while, but our living hope in Christ is forever. Our troubles only last for a little while, but but our living hope in Christ is forever. The second thing that I notice here from the text is not only does our, our faith, hope, and joy point beyond our earthly trials, but they're actually strengthened by our earthly trials. Your faith is strengthened, it's tested, it's refined like fire as a result of earthly trials. Trials shouldn't take us by surprise or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. God sends trials actively. God sends trials to strengthen us so that our faith is firm. Fire doesn't destroy gold, it just removes the impurities. The third observation here is when Jesus comes, and he is, we serve a risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning king. And when Jesus, King Jesus, comes, he will bring more than an end of suffering. He will bring his reward of blessing. Friends, our trials never go unseen and they're never forgotten. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 58 You, God, have kept account of my tossings and you've put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? Paul makes my heart sing when he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time as not being worth even comparing. To the glory that is to be revealed When Christ comes They're light And they're momentary Our troubles are light and momentary Do you know when they feel Heavy And incredibly long When we don't have our minds Fixed on the future resurrection Then our trials feel crushing They feel weighty They feel long Paul says they're light and they're momentary. Fix your eyes on things above. Lastly, number four, our living hope revels in an unseen but supreme person. Look at verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, unlike Peter himself, his readers, and we for uh, that instance here, do not have the privilege of seeing Jesus in the flesh. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. We have the sure promise that he is returning, but we have not had the privilege of setting our eyes on the resurrected Christ, but we will in the next life. Though we've not seen Jesus, we shall see him. A day is coming soon when we shall see our resurrected Lord. And not only will we see him, but we'll be like him. I can't wait for that. The day is coming soon when our eyes shall look upon the one whom we have believed in by faith and loved. The day is coming soon when our faith shall be sight. And so we say, Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? Are you eagerly anticipating the return of Christ, eagerly anticipating the culmination of his resurrection promises and all of their glorious full and final fulfillment? I love that though you've not seen him you love him you love him you will see him one day let me tell you this and let me close here you'll see him whether you know him or not you'll see him whether you know him or not friends for those of us here who know Christ by faith by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone have been united to Christ born again Raised with him in his resurrection. That will be a glorious day. Friends if you're here this morning. Kiddos, young people let me have your attention for a second. If you're here this morning and you've never come to a place of repentance. For your sin. Where you've turned from your sin. And turned toward Christ. Where you've received his mercy and his grace. Because of his Payment on Calvary's cross, that it was sufficient, that it was enough, that it was accepted by God the Father, and received Christ's righteousness credited to your account. If you've never received that, you will meet Him and it will be a dreadful day. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is, that it is a hideous, horrendous reality to die and to die apart from grace. Because then there is judgment. Then there is judgment. But you can repent, you can believe, you can become a new creation, you can be born again right where you sit this morning on the very 12 inches of cloth that you sit on, you can become a new creation, you can receive Jesus' resurrected power, you can have new life, you can have all the anticipation of the, the unfading, undefiled, imperishable inheritance that is reserved and guarded in heaven for you, you can have the sure assurance that God the great shield will guard you until that day and that he will bring you safely home. But you will, you will see him. You will see him, friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Jesus. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his victorious death. We thank you for the yes and amen that was pronounced at his resurrection. That sin and death and the grave were defeated in full. Totally it is finished. Father, we thank you for that. We glory in that. Help us to fix our eyes and our minds on things above. Help us to live in light of the resurrection that we would be Christians who have a living, abiding, fruitful, vibrant hope and that that would see us through where we are today in the middle of the already and the not yet. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.